Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello, Sixpack Nation. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 89. I am hot. I'm so hot you could fry bacon on my head. After episode 88 was recorded and uploaded last week, the most cowardly Episcopal act I've ever seen took place. Bishop William Callahan of Lacrosse, Father Altman's bishop, had a fraternal correction with the priest that amounted to a censure. That's all I'm going to say about Cowardly Lion Callahan this week, because I want to play part two of my interview with Father Altman today. I'm going to play the final part of the interview next week, but if you want to attend a chicken fry, make sure you listen to episode 91 on September 30. I'm going to fry that chicken Callahan, because he's made a Judas play on his own priest for telling the truth. For now, though, let's get back to the interview with Father Altman. I usually promote one of my books here, but from now on until the election, I'm going to run this. I have absolutely no doubt that President Trump will win re-election in a landslide victory on November the 3rd. However, and I pray I'm wrong, on November 4th, we'll see a level of violence that hasn't been seen in America since the Civil War in 1861. Certainly, we need to pray for God's mercy and protection, but we must also prepare. I'm begging you to spend the month of October building up your food reserves. If I'm right about the violence, it may be weeks before you'll be able to shop for any essentials, especially food. Be cautious, stay safe, and pray a lot. In this second installment of the interview, Father tells us of that one singular event that made a successful attorney choose the poverty of the priesthood. He also tells us about his first meeting with the man who was to be his bishop, Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, then Bishop of La Crosse. Let's roll the tape. You know what I never did? I never did get yet, so to answer the question, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Your question was, well, how did I get to, how did I leave the law? Right. Okay, so do you, do you have time for me to just quickly... Oh, I've got... Father, if you've got three hours, I've got ten. <laughs> okay, well, here's what happened. Um, uh, life was good, and my whole goal was ultimately to fill my house with those 13 children. But one of the things that happened is I started running the Adoration Chapel. Uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Joe... In fact, what is today? Eight, tomorrow is his anniversary of ordination. Uh, he and I... He was the holy one. So he... Uh, I. I a dear life friend of mine was the one that was running the Adoration Chapel, Jan, and she, uh, her husband had been injured in a work accident, and so she finally had to let go of the taking care of the place, hand it off to Joe and me, uh, and, and take care of her husband. So but it was about three years, Joe and I were running the Adoration Chapel. He was a morning guy. I was a, a night owl, so he'd like open up in the morning. We were a small town. Didn't have enough for 24-7, so sometimes he would open up and I'd close it. And when I when we were in there together, I'd I'd see him. I'd be sitting there. He'd, he'd be in the back with his bravery, right, with all those ribbons. He'd be flipping those ribbons around, and I'd say to myself, "Better you than me, buddy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, you, know you, you don't even know how God is preparing you. I remember having to do like benediction sort of a thing, kind of a, a reposition at the end. And we would do, I'd have to chant in front of, I mean, there's a small chant. There might be three people there at, at the end of the night, like at 11 o'clock at night. And I'd have to chant the, the uh, Tantamergo. And, and for me to do that publicly, I mean, when I was a kid, they say, oh, you want to be a rock star, right? But, I, you know, <laughs> it sounds good in theory, but, but just try and stand in front of a, you know, a few thousand people screaming, you know, I, you know, it's very intimidating. It was intimidating for me to have to sing the chant, the Tante Marigo in front of these people. But who knew that one day I was going to have to do it on a daily basis? Uh, anyway, so uh, three of us were running it. And after about three years, Jan said to me, hey, we're going to go to an ordination in Marquette, Michigan. So that's about a, a three-hour drive one way. It's on a Saturday, and you should come with us. And I said, nope, not going to do that. Because what it meant was, is I had to spend, you know, as a lawyer, I spent 60 hours minimum a week, working really, really hard, you know, in a suit every day. Uh, and Saturday morning, I would sleep in. And then I'd, I'd you know, <laughs> sweatpants or whatever, and I'd do all the household chores, go to the store, mow the lawn, do whatever needed to be done. And, and then what I would do is, Saturday at 6 p.m. to Sunday at 6 p.m., I kept 24 hours hold to stay holy. Because, you know, when you're a lawyer on Monday morning, you have people's lives hanging in the balance or in your hands. And so you, you sort of kind of prep on Sunday night. But I wasn't going to cheat the Lord out of his 24 hours. So it was 6 p.m. Saturday. So what it meant is if I went to this ordination, what it meant was I would have had to get up about 5 in the morning on a Saturday, shower up, get dressed and suit again, and then drive <laughs> three hours one way to Marquette. Uh, get there about an hour early because you need a parking spot, have to go in there, sit. And I, and I figured, oh, goodness, it's got to be at least two hours long. I mean, something special going on. And finally, when you get out of there, it's closing in on one. You go get something to eat. Then you have to drive back three hours to the Sioux. And, and, and then the day's, the day's gone. My one day to, like, recover uh, is gone. So I said, nope, not going to do it. And uh, she, she kept hounding me. Others of this whole group of holy people surrounding me, hunted me too. Well, one day Jen said to me, well, everybody should go to an ordination once in their life. And and you know, lawyer that I was, I, I was still at a loss for words. I didn't know what to say. So I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll go, but only if Joe drives. And uh, so so we did. So uh, sure enough, I get up on a Saturday morning, 5 a.m., shower up, put on the suit and tie. Joe comes at 6 o'clock, very prompt, unlike myself. And off we go to Marquette and get there about 9 o'clock. And uh, I sit in the very last occupied pew because that's where I was sitting back. I used to do that in church. I'd sit in the usher's chairs, like behind the pew. They got tired of that. So finally, if you're going to sit here in our chairs, we're going to put you to work. That's how I started becoming an usher. And uh, so anyway, so I'm sitting in the last occupied pew. Joe's over there, some of my other friends. Were. And then the mass starts. Have, so have you, you've been to an ordination? Yes, I have. Okay. Well, I, I'd never been to one. So uh, so there we go. And you know, it starts mass like a normal holy mass, and, uh, and then all of a sudden in the middle, the bishop pulls out that chair in the middle, and he sits down, he gives a homily, uh, calls the guy up, gives a homily, and then there comes a time for, now we're going to have a litany of saints. So I, I didn't know that's what was going to happen then, but but then you see the, the man that's about to be ordained, he's, he lays down flat on the floor, for called prostrate on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh man, that's just like it's in the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And uh, then... Then there comes a moment after that litany when the bishop actually ordains. And how that happens, of course, he stands up and he, he goes and kneels down in front of the bishop and the bishop lays hands on his head and prays silently. Well, I didn't know what that meant exactly at the time, but now I come to find out that this has been going on since the time of Moses and the, and the original. Remember Moses was leading those guys, the, the whole like couple million Israelites out of in the Exodus. And everybody came to Moses to solve their problems and finally said to God, well, listen, I, I can't handle everybody. I need some help here. So God said, appoint 70. Well, that eventually formed into what's then the Sanhedrin. Right. Well, when, when someone uh, 
was getting old and needed to retire or was dying or died, well, then they had to, they had to replace him. So there was always 70. And the sign of replacing someone was they would lay hands on the head of the new guy, and that was like the transfer of power. This is this, what you see. It's called semicha, S-E-M-I-C-H-A. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that's, that's the transfer of power. So when you see the bishop actually do this, I didn't, again, I didn't know it at the time, that's 3,400 years old. So sure enough, the guy gets up, kneels down in front of the bishop, and the bishop does that. And I thought, again, I thought, wow, that's, that's just like the pictures. <laughs> and, and so, uh, then, so then, and then he gets up from that place and the ordination has actually occurred at that moment. But here's what I didn't, what, what I didn't is that shortly thereafter, one by one, every other priest from the diocese, the priests, friends from seminary that have already been ordained, one by one, they come up and they lay hands on them and pray. That's, I've never seen that. And just about the time they started doing that, so we had a magnificent uh, cathedral choir in Marquette. John Ignatowski was a leader. And they started uh, in with the, this Taizé chant from that monastery in France called uh, Veni Santi Spiritus, Come Holy Spirit. Beautiful. That's awesome. You know, sometimes they, they, the words are in, in German and uh, it crescendos, and, and they had these, these trumpets. And uh, so I actually did the math once. And at this point in my life, I'd been on the planet for about 1 billion with a B, 300 million seconds. So what, I, what I'm going to describe to you was less than 10 seconds. There are no words uh, to, well, there's just words. I, no matter what I say, is going to, what happened, I, the, the only way I can describe it is like a, a moment, like must have been at Pentecost, you know, in the upper room. Right. And it was like a, a great weight came down. Now you're just sitting there minding your own business. I'm in the last pew, minding my own business, and uh, it was like a great weight came down upon me, and like intense. And then I heard a divine love, and all the voice said, just as clearly as, as I'm talking to you, you're supposed to be up there. And uh, it wasn't like a, a mean voice, like, you loser, I've given you all these gifts, <laughs> I've you know, taken care of you, and you aren't up there. What's wrong with you? Um, it was a voice love. That uh, and it was so overwhelming that I that I started to cry like very publicly, cry out of the blue, and, and all my friends are around me. Here's a tough old lawyer, and uh, I tell you that in that ten second, I knew my life as I knew it was over, and I had no, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a direct vocation. Uh, it took a about a year's worth of you know just uh, trial and error to to work through this whole process. Most most seminarians get to go look at the various seminaries before they even go, and I just. Uh, through a, just a, a collection of, of miraculous events, uh, God's providential events, which are nothing less than miraculous. I get a call from the director of vocations down here in the cross and said, Bishop Burke has like a 15-minute window of opera, uh, opening on, I think it was August 9th of 2000. Can you come down? So this is like, this is like a 10-hour drive away. And um, I said, okay. I had to arrange a few things in the schedule because, you know, our, our lawyer schedules are kind of filled up. That's how you make money. You know, it's, you, did, you, did your dad ever tell you, what do you think, money grows on trees in the backyard? Did you ever hear that? <laughs> yeah. A phrase like that? Well, my dad used to say that when I was growing up. He grew up on a farm in the Depression. He knew you had to work. And that's another gift from my parents. Is that We're not relying on the government to support us. Uh, we have to work. If you're capable, you get up and you go to work. I started washing dishes in a restaurant when I was 12. So, um, anyway... Um, so I rearranged this. Oh, so I, I know what I was going to tell you. So as a lawyer, <laughs> what I found out is that kind of does grow on trees in the back. All I had to do was say yes to a file, and suddenly there was money. Life was good. Uh, <laughs> I rearranged everything, though, and, and came down, and, and I got to meet with Bishop Burke in his office for about, it was about 15 minutes. And I walked in. I was so tongue-tied. It was only, the, I think, the, 
The third time in my life I'd seen a bishop when I was seventh grade. He, he anointed me and slapped my cheek because it was confirmation. <laughs> and then I saw a bishop once in Mark, up in the diocese. He was making a church into a consecrating. Um, I walked into his office, and I was so tongue-tied. Because he had a, you know, even back then in 2002, he had a reputation for being an awesome, holy star among stars in the U.S. Catholic Church. In, yes, in the he did. World. And, I, and I walked in. And I and I called him father because I, I did I was just I was just so like uh, uh, bewildered uh, uh, and I and, and my the thought that immediately went through my head is oh goodness he's going to think I'm an idiot <laughs> at, at you know whatever my career was supposed to be uh, thankfully he didn't think I was an idiot uh, and uh, so and then the rest is history but it all but it all came to um, and I didn't find out later what mystical experiences really were which uh, I found out in seminary and spiritual. Uh, classes and direction that you know it's a genuine mystical experience it's not a command performance like i didn't well for, <laughs> i wasn't even asking god for any particular i was content to go back to Sault Ste. Marie and be a lawyer um it's 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 not a command performance we can't order god to answer our question right here right now hey buddy that's not the way <laughs> it's also um very short and like i said i don't know if that lasted 10 seconds this experience out of the blue expecting it and then and then the third criteria to know that it's a genuine experience is that it is so godlike so uh, so mystical that it changes your life and and it certainly didn't mind i know my family was completely against my leaving behind the law practice which i for 12 years uh, to go to seminary they thought, are you crazy <laughs> are you out of your mind uh but they weren't there when I was, you know, several hours a week down in the Adoration Chapel. They weren't there when at 2 a.m. I was out scraping the windshield and going down, driving down to, to the Adoration Chapel. They weren't there when that grace through being in the presence of the real presence just irradiates you like a, like a microwave in ways you don't even know, you can't even see. Uh, and they weren't there for that 10 second when I heard that I'm up. So that is the long story. As to, uh, I think it's a great story. How I ended up. A couple Can of I things. Too, though, that that it, it is not because I was holy, and nor because I'm holy now. That's what it would have taken, uproot me, something uh, inexplicable. It would have taken to uproot me because I was firmly invested in in the law, in, in my life. And so it would have taken something pretty dramatic to, to, to move. You know, what's that? The inertia, a thing at rest tends to stay at rest. So, right. Uh, yeah. So, but it wasn't because I was holy. I, I still, to this day, on my ordination card, I said, "By what miracle am I part of this?" To this day, I ask the same question. When, and I say, and I often say it this way: "I say, what were you, what were you thinking?" <laughs> I'm so unworthy, uh, so undeserving, still baffled that he loves me. That's Absolutely. wonderful, Father. I appreciate that. This is the way God seems to like to work. I'll give you a personal example. My priest, when I was received into the church, was a very holy octogenarian who came out of retirement to take a parish that would have otherwise been shut down. He belonged to a missionary order, so he was incredibly evangelistically minded. Even while I was a catechumen, he began pushing me, not urging me, pushing me to share the faith. I won't tell you everything that took place, which includes involvement from the archbishop, but I will say that this holy old priest won out and I began evangelizing. From that day to this, I hate the idea of doing anything to evangelize or teaching the catechism. Yet the only time I'm completely happy is when I'm doing those very things. A priest once told me that's a pretty sure sign I've got a vocation to be a lay evangelist. 
The same is true for Father Altman. What man in his right mind would turn his back on a successful law practice to become a priest? God had a plan. He causes the good things and permits the bad things in our lives to form us into the person he wants us to be in order to carry out his will. Father uses his education and training as an attorney every day in his priesthood. That's what makes ordinarily less than mediocre men so uniquely effective in their priestly ministry. And when you have one as brilliant as Father Altman, you've got an exceptional priest. Father Altman had the ability to become a very, very wealthy man as an attorney, but he followed the path God laid out for him until he embraced the poverty of the priesthood. Next week, we'll finish our interview with Father Altman. Then the following week, we're going to have a chicken fry right here on the Cantankerous Catholic. have an apostolate you'd like other Catholics to learn about? Maybe you have an e-commerce business and you want to build sales while supporting a holy orthodox apostolate. Whatever you want to advertise, the Cantankerous Catholic is your portal to success. The Cantankerous Catholic isn't even a year into broadcasting its weekly shows and we're already listened to in 16 countries, all 50 states, and 101 major cities throughout the U.S. and Canada. Our listener demographics are the most sought after for advertisers. The Cantankerous Catholic avatar is 53% men and 47% women ages 18 to 34. The show's average growth rate through 2019 was 24% per week, and our listeners are Orthodox Catholics who reject heterodox Catholic positions and political correctness. Relative to other broadcasts and online advertising, our rates are extremely cost-effective and inexpensive. You can advertise in each show's show notes, in the recorded episode itself, our weekly newsletter that announces each new episode, all of these media together, or in any combination. So contact us today by filling out the form on the Sponsor Kit page at cantankerouscatholic.com or email Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, directly at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com to learn how you can begin driving traffic to whatever you want to promote while helping to support a worthy, orthodox, and hard-hitting apostolate. Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the Washington Examiner. President Trump challenged Democratic nominee Joe Biden to publish a list of potential Supreme Court nominees as he added 20 figures to his own slate of candidates for any future vacancy. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to Catholic News Agency. The Bishop of St. Catherine's, Ontario, is pleading for thieves to return the consecrated host after the tabernacle was stolen from St. Catherine of Alexandria Cathedral. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. 
Catholic News Pick number three. Hats off to National Catholic Register. Before January, Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, had only attended a traditional Latin Mass once before and never had even said the words of consecration in Latin in the 35 years of his priesthood. He changed all that in a dramatic way, celebrating his first Mass in the extraordinary form on June 11th, the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, on the church calendar followed by traditional Catholics. That's what I'm talking about! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick number two. Hats off to the Falkirk Center. This piece is a response to young Christian millennials who often sacrifice their Christian values for the sake of being relevant to the world. Share this with everyone you know who's a millennial. I like that. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick number one. Hats off to Catholic News Agency. The Diocese of Providence, Rhode Island is welcoming eight new seminarians this year, the highest number of incoming seminarians in nearly four decades. Some great news to share. The Providence Diocese is welcoming eight new seminarians this year, the most seminarians in almost 40 years, said Bishop Thomas Tobin of Providence, Rhode Island on Twitter. Bishop Tobin is a good man. Oh, I love it! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholicism 101 is the segment where Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, gives you little thumbnail lessons to help you better learn and understand the Catholic faith. Here's this week's Catholicism 101. This is a true story. I once knew a man who had three sons. All the sons were well-behaved and respected their father with a love not commonly seen. He seldom had to punish his sons because they were eager to please their father. However, the oldest son got it into his head that he simply was not going to obey his father on one particular matter. The father spanked his son repeatedly for this chronic act of disobedience. It got to the point that the father knew he would lose his son to his boy's own will if he didn't break the streak of disobedience, so he decided to get creative. The next time the boy repeated his disobedience on the matter, the father sent his son for the paddle. In times past, the boy would move slowly to retrieve the paddle, putting off as long as he could the coming spanking. This time, though, the boy walked quickly to get the paddle, then returned purposefully to his father and handed the paddle over with an attitude of arrogant defiance. The father, saddened by his son's attitude, told his young son that he would have to give him a paddling more severe than he'd ever done before. He told the boy to turn around and take what was coming to him. The boy defiantly turned, then bent over to hold his ankles while he awaited the spanking. The boy heard the swoosh of the first blow headed toward his bottom, followed by a smack of the contact. The boy jerked and shuddered. Then came the second smack, and the boy shuddered a little less. By the third smack, the boy realized he wasn't being struck at all. On about the sixth smack, the boy looked around to see his father bring the paddle down again on his own leg. He had been hitting himself so hard that blood was seeping through his trousers. 
The little boy stood upright and wrapped himself around his father's leg, sobbing almost hysterically while begging his father to stop. The little boy began to shout, I'm sorry, Daddy. I won't do it again. Please stop. I'm sorry. The father stopped and knelt down to hold his repentant son. As the boy's sobs lapsed into shaky intakes of breath, the father said, Son, I need you to understand that when you do something wrong, there has to be a price paid. Your disobedience was so bad that it merited extreme punishment, but I couldn't bring myself to give you what you deserved, so I took the punishment you deserved in your place. God is the father of us all. Jesus is his son, but he is also the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Original sin offended an infinite being, so it deserved infinite punishment, hence the reason he created hell. All of our personal sins also offend the infinite being and deserve infinite punishment. But being the all-merciful Father that God is, he chose instead to take our punishment on himself by taking on a human body and nature, then going to the cross to die. That was the bloody sacrifice Jesus took on for us. A sacrifice is the offering of a victim by a priest to God. The Mass and Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary are one and the same, because in the Mass, Jesus makes himself present on the altar so that we can celebrate the memory of the cross, as well as apply its saving power for the forgiveness of our sins. The sacrificial character of the Eucharist is manifest in the words of institution. This is my body, which is given for you, and this cup, which is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for the forgiveness of sins, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The holy sacrifice of the Mass is at one and the same time the sacrifice of the cross made present on our altars, a memorial of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and a sacred banquet at which we receive him in Holy Communion. In both the sacrifice of the Mass and the sacrifice of the cross, the victim is Jesus Christ himself. He acted as the high priest who offered himself to the Father on the cross, He continues to act as the high priest of the same sacrifice in the Mass, but does so now through the ministry of his priests. The difference between the sacrifice of the cross and the sacrifice of the Mass is in the manner of presentation. Christ, who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner on the altar of the sacrifice of the Mass, according to the Council of Trent. On the cross, Jesus offered himself to the Father when he yielded up his spirit. In the Mass, Jesus offers himself to the Father in the consecration. The double consecration of the bread and wine represents the mystical separation of his body and blood. When the body and blood are separated, death results. Reception of the Holy Eucharist is our participation in Christ's redemptive sacrifice on the cross. The purpose of the sacrifice of the Mass and the sacrifice of the cross are one and the same. They both give glory, praise, and worship to the Father. They both provide expiation and reparation for our sins and the sins of all mankind. They both appeal to God for the natural and supernatural favors we need, particularly those which help us to become holy. 
Next week, we'll look at the mechanics of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Then we'll begin looking at Holy Communion. After we finish with Holy Communion, we'll take a look at how to give proper respect to Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, and how so many people grieve him today by taking him for granted and showing him so little respect. What did Billy D. Williams the celebrated American artist Norman Rockwell and famed comedian Jimmy Durante have to do with one man's journey from conservative Judaism to the cross. Everything. Marty Barrick has lived one of the most fascinating conversion journeys ever told. In Calvary Road, Marty's biography, you can read about Marty's military service with Billy D. Williams, how Norman Rockwell helped him pass a college course, how in his deep abiding love for his late wife, Marty helped Irene travel the road of sanctity. How the times are quickly reaching critical mass for fulfilling prophecy concerning the Jews, and much, much more. Get your copy of Calvary Road by Marty Barrick today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Augustine. He said, The angels surround and help the priest when he is celebrating Mass. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Many years ago, a ship was wrecked off the coast of Ireland. The captain had the reputation of being very cautious, nor was the weather so stormy that it explained the immense distance that the ship had swerved from her proper course. Accordingly, when the ship went down, there was so much interest in the disaster that a diver went below to determine, if possible, the cause of the wreck. Among other things the diver brought back to the surface was the ship's compass. Inside the compass box, they found a tiny bit of steel, which appeared to be the tip of a knife blade. They concluded and later confirmed that the day before the wreck, a sailor had been tasked with cleaning the compass. In digging out some dirt, he had used his pocket knife and had unknowingly broken off the very point and left it in the box. That little bit of the knife was enough to throw off the compass by one degree and cause the shipwreck. This is a picture of venial sin. Even the smallest sin deflects the soul from its course toward God and affects the conscience, which is the soul's compass. Such sins even sometimes wreck a soul. Avoid venial sin, even though it's a less serious offense against the law of God, but it isn't a slight matter. Venial sin doesn't cause spiritual death, but rather spiritual sickness and laziness. Help your fellow Catholic six-packers. They need to be listening to the Cantankerous Catholic, and you can help them find it better if you leave a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Leaving a review will make it easier for other Catholics to find the Cantankerous Catholic, because reviews cause the podcasting platforms to show it more often. And I thank you in advance for leaving a review. 
This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.